Hey everybody, Joe here from the Lions Led by Donkeys podcast. If you enjoy what we do here on the show and you think it's worth your hard-earned money, you can support the show via Patreon. Just a $1 donation gets you access to bonus episodes, our Discord, and regular episodes before everybody else. If you donate at an elevated level, you get even more bonus content. A digital copy of my book, The Hooligans of Kandahar, and a sticker from our Teespring store. Our show will always be ad-free and is totally supporter-driven. We use that money to pay our bills, buy research materials that make this show possible, and support charities like the Kurdish Red Crescent, the Flint Water Fund, and the Halo Trust. Consider joining the Legion of the Old Crow today. And now back to the show. And welcome to yet another episode of the Lines Led by Donkeys podcast. I'm Joe, and with me uh, again, this is what, two times in a row, it's a new record. Nick. Hell yeah. <laughs> Nick. It's like when we were stationed at Fort Hood, and every time you'd leave, it'd like it's been this many days and somebody's been killed in a traffic accident. <laughs> it's, been this, it's been this many days since uh, Nick has been stolen by the army. Wasn't it the whole hundred days and we get a Donza? And we never got it. We absolutely never, never got it. Um, it was... It, and it, I feel bad, but we used to get pissed off. Yeah, I mean, like, yeah, people are dying. It's terrible. But also, like, it's almost universally some getting trashed and then flooring their fucking Mustang with 25% interest into a light pole somewhere and clean. Um mm. It happened a lot in Kentucky, actually. We had horrible uh, amounts of car accidents in Kentucky. Uh, I was at uh, Knox, not Campbell, and Knox is in a dry uh, county, right? So like, you can't buy alcohol. Ew. You can buy alcohol on post. So like, you could just get drunk and stay on post. But who the fuck wants to do that? I mean, I was underage when I was there, so I had no choice but to like sneak booze from other people. But other people right. would have to drive like straight out to fucking Louisville, which is forty five minutes to an hour away, to like get drunk, and then they try to drive back. Um, and die in horrible car accidents, which is why, like, dry counties, like, areas of dry counties have incredibly high drunk driving accident rates because people just, like, it doesn't stop people from drinking. People are going to be people. They just go further to drink. <laughs> I mean, we used to have that in Fort Hood, but because, you know, Austin's right there and there's nothing to do, like, unless you yeah, want to stay yeah. in clean, which, why? You can go out to Starlight Station or Starfight or Star Wife, whatever it is uh, they call it now. It's had a few different names. I just... Yeah, every time somebody gets shot in the parking lot, they have to change the name in order to dodge the blacklist. For <laughs> <Fort> Hood. <laughs> um, speaking of, you think they'll sponsor us? None of those things. Uh, Starlight <laughs> Station. I don't know. Neither one of us are drug dealers, so probably not. Um. I do I do remember one point when someone like broke in and like set one of the rooms on fire and it was almost certainly someone trying to get insurance money mm. that like owned it which is just incredible um cuz there was a, he was caught on his own security cameras it's like it's it's these it's the shit that you'd see in like a fucking B-rate mafia film but just some idiot in Colleen, Texas my cousin, well, not my cousin but my buddy got his shoes stolen in the parking lot he was he was wearing them it's, un- it's very unbrand. Uh, I had uh, was it Starlight or there's another uh, bar right next to it. Uh, but someone tried to run me over in the parking lot once. Isn't there a Babes um, next to it? But thankfully, 
There was a strip club which I went to once because I hate strip clubs and I got like peer pressure in it. Like strip clubs are fucking gross. There was another bar. Yeah, I'm I'm terrible at it. Why do you think (laughs) I did so much drugs? <laughs> uh, but there's the strip club and there's another bar directly next to it, and that was the one I went to. And someone tried to run me over in the parking lot. Um, and I would say it was like an accident, but like they gunned it towards me and then swerved towards me as I jumped Were out of the way. Pointing at you? Uh, <laughs> I don't think so. Crazy. I was pr- I was pretty fucking drunk too. Uh, I probably deserved it, to be completely honest. Maybe we're not bad with peer pressure. Um, Maybe they go, you know what? You don't have to go. And you're like, you know what? You got me. <laughs> like, Joe, you you don't have to do this. Fuck you. I'm doing it. Um, s- Speaking of stuff that has nothing to do with anything we just talked about. How the fuck uh, did we do Nazis. Get- <laughs> Nazis. Um, they, they exist. Um, now, Nick, you might remember from a very long time ago. Actually... You fucking wouldn't remember because you weren't here again. Um, I had good friend of mine uh, and former medic and was in uh, hooligans uh, with me. Um, come on and talk about all of the weird people uh, who were Nazis that ended up like the Korean guy who fought in three armies. Oh, I missed uh, that one. Fuck. And <laughs> and Larry Thorne, uh, the the SS Finnish volunteer who would become a Green Beret and die in Vietnam. A a straight-up Nazi that is still celebrated as a hero by the Special Forces community. A community that has certainly no problems with extremism within the ranks. Um, But yeah. uh, Now, when that episode came out, a lot of people asked if we were ever going to talk about the companies uh, who took part in uh, Nazi government or the Holocaust, right? Um, now, there's there's a lot of them. <laughs> there's, a, <laughs> there's a reason why I, I almost didn't do this, because it could be a series or a fucking podcast of its own. Um, so many companies that we know today... Um, were heavily involved in the Holocaust, or if not the Holocaust, the Nazi war machine. And they largely get a pass. Almost, actually, I say largely, entirely. They entirely get a pass. Uh, it's Chrysler. Well, back when my room was named, it's Chrysler. It's a, sh- it's a what, a Chevy, right? <laughs> so I okay, finally well, get a no. new vehicle. Um, is that what you're saying? Uh, who owns... Is Dodge owned by Chrysler? Do- so it's... It's owned by Daimler Chrysler, so uh, guess where the Daimler comes in? <laughs> that was back. Not not anymore. Not anymore. Yes, uh, just to be safe, and I don't even I don't even know because uh, I don't talk about the Daimler uh, manufacturing plants or anything. But you should. A truck is a death trap, and you keep getting pulled over, and <laughs> people keep people keep running into you. Uh, so you had to leave the Pacific Northwest to stop getting pulled over for being brown. In your area, yes. Weird how that works. Yeah, yeah. Um, not that the Pacific Northwest was settled by people so racist they didn't even want slaves there. Um, now, there's a lot of uh, Nazi companies we're not going to talk about, uh, but they get an honorable mention, like Simons uh, and a few others. Simons sticks out to me um, because they built the um, the ovens that were used in death camps to dispose of, to destroy human remains, right? Oh, um, fast forward a couple decades, and they attempted to copyright the name Zyklon uh, for gas ovens, 
Zyklon, of course, being the name of the poison that was used to murder millions of right. Jews, which were then disposed of in Simon's ovens. So, yeah, um, that is, you know, it's, like I said, honorable mention. Uh, we're not going to talk about Simon's a whole lot, simply because there's so many other companies, um, and I can't get through them all, honestly. There might be a part two to this at some point. Um and we will not be talking about Henry Ford because we've already done that in a bonus episode uh, in regards to him being an anti-Semite and a Nazi. Um, so I'm not going to try to rehash that. If you want to hear more about Henry Ford, go check out our bonus episode on the HBO series, The Plot Against America. Um, Still haven't watched that yet. It's fine. It could be so much better. I mean, it's based on a book and they stayed within the confines of the book. So it is what it is. Um now, like we've already, like I said, we've already talked about a lot of these. Um, this is not an exhaustive list, uh, so you know, just bear with me if I if I left something out, like a, a giant conglomerate, like I don't know, Benz or Mercedes um, or any of these other fucking people. Volkswagen is another one who are almost certainly part. Prius. Of- what's uh, what's that? Your Prius? That's Toyota. Toyota was uh, Japanese, so they have the. I heard your Prius was in that list too. They have, they have other baggage. Um, <laughs> now, um, Mitsubishi Heavy Industries actually has a lot of baggage behind it. Uh, I don't know about Toyota. Probably nothing's good. They're all giant international conglomerates. They're bathed in fucking human blood. So if I leave any large company out, it's not because I didn't know about it. Maybe I didn't. Honestly, it's just a cover up for me. Um, but I, I might get to it at a later time. All right. So we're going to talk a lot about Fanta, but before we get to Fanta, we have to talk about Coke. Who owns and invented Fanta? Um, maybe that's Coca-Cola. Uh, so small side note here. Uh, this has nothing to do with anything else, but I felt like a, it, it required to be pointed out. Coke was invented by a guy named Dr. John Pemberton, a Confederate civil war veteran, you know, back when I actually had drugs in it. Um, just throwing that out there now. Um, since then, the company obviously right. exploded, got huge, uh, and they moved into Germany about 10 years before Hitler's rise to power, uh, and they opened up their first bottling factory in 1929. Now, the German uh, operation in, uh, of Coke was a subsidiary of American Coke. That is, it's technically a different country, but under the uh, a different company in a different country. Under the control of a different uh, company somewhere else. Um, How do you die? So they were like Coke Germany, but they still <laughs> were Coke. Um, now, the reason why I, I point out that things are a subsidiary is because people try to use that as cover. Like, well, we weren't in control of them, like, but you were. Um, it's kind of like the, the Daimler Chrysler situation. Um, actually, that's probably not accurate uh, comparison. But like how Ford or Chevy or whoever owns 18 other car brands, you know, um, like I don't it, it would be like if one of the Ford companies just had a slave labor camp and then Ford itself is like, well, we don't technically control them. Like you fucking know, you know, that you know what they're doing um, now. Uh, it's important to point out that these two, uh, that American and German Coke companies were in very close communications with one another, uh, because that's generally how business like that work. Uh, the German branch of Coke was taken over by a guy named Max Kite, because uh, the previous guy died. And uh, Kite was known for being a die... 
I don't fucking know, uh, German reasons, choked on a sausage, inhaled a bratwurst straight to his esophagus. Kite was known for not necessarily being anything other than a Coke guy. He was a company man, which is why he was picked. He didn't put... This is Coke's side of the history, anyway. He was hired <laughs> because he put the um, uh, Coke's goals over his own and even Germany's. Um, like he was not a nationalist yet. Yet, I will. I argue with this a bit. I would argue that Max Kite is a hell of a fucking nationalist, <laughs> but we'll get there. Uh, you know, and as a German dude in Germany in 1930. All of that's going to be tested, and he's going to fail all of them with flying colors. Under Kite's rule, he exported coke into every facet of German society. Now, that society soon became a Nazi one. Um, that meant Kite ended up cozying up to the worst people in human history in order to make more and more money. This includes sponsoring the Berlin Olympics in 1936, which are now obviously known as the Nazi Olympics. Because all the Nazis, and you know, it was held in Germany. Um, now, this is not just the fault of Kite. Uh, Coke itself was heavily involved. The CEO of Coke, uh, Robert Woodruff, attended the games and even had banners made that had the Coke logo side by side with a swastika. Oh, I found some of these, and they're fucking insane. Uh, there's another one uh, where, like, to commemorate the games. There was like a, a metal swastika, like probably cheap tin or whatever, uh, stamped out in swastika shapes that had like Coca-Cola in cursive across them that would be given out. Yeah. <laughs> it's fucking grim, man. Well, um, I don't like soda. I'm not a huge fan either. Um, I used to drink a fuckload of Dr. Pepper um, when I was younger. That was my that was my pop of choice. I thought that was when you were That's back it. in Texas. Um, I was actually, by the time I moved to Texas, I no longer liked pop in general. So like I moved to the home world of, of, of Dr. Pepper and didn't give a shit. We're not doing the pop soda argument. (laughs) Not today. Not again. (laughs) We've done this for so, we've been doing this for years. Um, everybody, I know like the, the pop side of the argument is significantly less popular. I, I get it. I don't care. So many people are going to make fun of the way I say that. Now, um, Mark Pendergrast points out in the book for God, Country, and Coca-Cola, a hell of a name there, quote, some like Henry Ford were in fact Nazi sympathizers, while other like Walter Teagle of Standard Oil avoided taking sides, but saw nothing wrong with doing business with the Nazis in order to make money. Like his friend and hunting companion Teagle, Woodruff practiced the same thing. So the CEO of Coke saw the, the oil guy you know, Standard Oil, a company that is not famously problematic in American history, and was like, we should follow their example and make money hey, off good, the Nazis. Good guys. Yeah, good guy, that's Standard Oil. Um, which means this is a very, very nice way of uh, people being perfectly fine with doing business with the worst people on Earth as long as it you know made them rich. A good example of this is when Hermann Göring announced that the Nazis would stop importing and exporting so much in an effort to become self-sustaining. Woodruff reached out to him personally for an exemption while telling Kite to ramp up local production in Germany to make up for the lack of importing, which he did. The only thing they could not make on site was Coke syrup, which had to be imported. Um, 
which uh, for a long time, there was like a handshake agreement between Coke and Goring that like, hey, well, we can still import, right? And Goring's like, yeah, you're good. (laughs) (laughs) Kite held a convention for Coke Germany's 1,500 salesmen and bottlers, generally their entire employment body. Journalist Ralph McGill uh, was there and describes, quote, a giant picture of Hitler covered the entire back wall, a picture that inspired frequent stiff arm salutes and shouts of Heil Hitler, an audio clip I'm sure will not be taking out of context to anybody listening to this. This is at a Coke convention? This is this is at a, 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 a an employee convention for Coca-Cola Germany. Yeah. Okay. Cut. Kite, speaking from beneath a huge Coca-Cola banner bearing three enormous swastikas, called for a massive Sig Heil to the Fuhrer's honor. <laughs> like, yeah, uh, no, it's good. It's fine. Um, Do you think the polar bear of Coke was a Nazi? He's white, right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> oh, no, polar I like polar bears. I, I regret saying that. <laughs> The polar bear is innocent. He's just following orders. Shit. <laughs> God damn it. The polar bear's a Nazi. In April of 1939, Hitler turned 50 years old and Coke Germany turned 10. At that celebration, Kite exhorted a crowd of another round of Sig Heils to, quote, commemorate our deepest admiration and gratitude to our Fuhrer who has led our nation into the, a brilliant higher sphere of existence. Oh. Does this sound like a company guy <laughs> or a Nazi? <laughs> Sounds like something. Yeah. Uh, that is that isn't the only evidence that Kite might be a little bit more of a Nazi than a company man. Um, when a rumor spread that Harold Hirsch, uh, who was the only Jewish man in the company's uh, American company's board of directors, obviously not the German one at this point, was actually the CEO, which he was not. Uh, German sales plummeted, you know, because they're Nazis. So Kite uh, personally demanded to Woodruff that Coke fire him uh, to to appease the the Nazis and not hurt his bottom line, which thankfully Coke did not do. Um, But remember, he demanded that a Jewish man in a different country be fired to make the Nazis feel better. Then the war started. Um, yeah, Yeah, he's he's. He's certainly something. Um, (laughs) Then the war started, and Coke didn't really seem to care. Kite also began to work directly with the Nazi government as a full direct member and part of the Office of Enemy Property. Certainly not an anonymous government agency to work for. (laughs) Hi, I work for the the Ministry of Loot and Pillage. Brought to you by Coke. Uh, Brought to you by Coke. Um... The polar bear can smell if you're Jewish. (laughs) Now, there's a reason for this, and that's because at the time, the Nazis were nationalizing a lot of large companies uh, and repurposing their needs for the war effort. And Kite wasn't an idiot and and knew if he worked for the Nazis, he could probably save Coke Germany from that, and he'd be able to continue making money, which is exactly what happened. But this man worked for the Office of Enemy Property. In Nazi Germany. (laughs) Meanwhile, Coke uh, US kept exporting supplies to the German branch, uh, like that agreement about the syrup that we talked about, so they could keep bottling Coke. Uh, Coke was the number one soft drink in the country and was loved by both Hermann Goering and Adolf Hitler. 
Uh, this was before the U.S. is at war with Germany, but of course that would eventually change when Japan fucked it all up for everybody in the soda game and bombed Pearl Harbor. Mm. Now, as, as America entered the war, uh, companies had to stop doing business with the Nazis immediately, something we will find out nobody ever does. Um, though, to Coke's credit, they did stop exporting everything to Germany meaning they could no longer make Coke. Now, I say to their credit, but it would become physically impossible at this point in order to do so. Oh, so they still um, try. Well, I mean, they, even they were smart enough to realize, like, you know, we can't send a boat or a plane or whatever to Nazi Germany full of Coke supplies. It'll get shot down or torpedoed or whatever. Uh, we, can't, we can't do that anymore. Um, now, at this point... Uh, Coke had some surplus built up because remember they 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 had a feeling something was eventually going to happen that would cut the supply line. So they were able to make it based on their surplus for a while, which at this point was bottled by slaves from nearby concentration camps. Oh. Uh now Kite knew that he was eventually going to run out and he would have to make something else. Alas, his factory get taken and he lose all of his sweet government issued slaves. Uh, and it, this was becoming harder and harder because, you know, war rationing is a thing, right? right? So, like, he, he doesn't have full reign of supplies. So, he worked with a chemist to create a drink from rationing's leftovers. According to Atlas Obscura, it was, quote, fruit shavings, apple fibers, and pulp, beet sugar, and whey. The liquid remaining after milk has been curdled and strained during the cheese pro- uh, during cheese production. Now, I knew of whey as that thing that we all drink in cheap protein supplements that make you shit your brains right. out. This would become Fanta. Oh, I was about to say, this doesn't <laughs> sound like Coke. If- <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, Fanta is made out of like apple refuse and, and whey. I didn't like the whole beet thing because beets taste awful. I, I like beets. Um, I don't know anything about beet sugar. Yeah, I'm, I'm Eastern European. Leave me alone. Um, now, I think um, like the beet sugar was just like, I don't know, a beet made sweetener because sugar is being rationed at this point. So they have to like s- use the sweetener from beets. Do they, do um, they beat it out of the beets? Boo. Um, now, there's uh, a the thing. They, they became the most popular drink in Nazi Germany because they're the only game in town. Uh, because, you know, Coke is gone. Right. And then there was the, also they were, it was like one of the only ways like a normal like household could get a hold of a sweetener because you know sugar is being rationed. So like housewives would buy it as a as a use of sweetening like baked goods because it had beet sugar in it. So you just have like Fanta cake Ugh. and shit. <laughs> soda cake. <laughs> now this move to Fanta saved the German branch of Coke, uh, but Kite definitely worked with and benefited from the Nazis and all the horrible shit that it entails. Now, I do need to be clear. He was never an official member of the Nazi party. Not that any of that really matters all that much. Um, in the book, How Soda Took Over the World, it is opined that Kite probably assumed uh, in his own personal letters, uh, like yeah, he was writing to his family and stuff, that Germany would eventually win um, the war. And because of his position, he would be made head of Coke International. And run the so world he was, of, of soda. Cool. Yeah, the Lebenstrom, but for soda. Um, obviously that didn't happen. Um, so after throwing up Hitler's salutes and running bottling plants with prison and slave labor, 
probably meant that like he is the poison pill, right? Like nobody's gonna tell, uh, nobody's gonna hire him afterwards. Like he's gonna have a hard time. Uh, I don't know, putting in job applications at the local schnitzel factory after the war is over. Of course, he found a job. Who are we fucking kidding? You want to know what we want to know what his job was? Uh, can I guess? Shoot, fucking beet farmer. That would be that would be much less awful. Um, because at least then you like he'd have to, you know, toil on the land or whatever. Uh, Coke hailed him as a company hero, and he became the head of huh? all European operations. He was never held accountable for anything. Company hero. Yeah, that's right, baby. <laughs> now, this this part is only included because I I hate it. Um, now, if you look this, like if you look up, like was Fanta invented by the Nazis? Uh, you'll probably come to Snopes. Uh, are you familiar with the website Snopes? No, it's a shit website these days. It used to be much better. Uh, it's kind of poisoned itself while attempting to fact check politics and while clearly favoring certain people. Uh, but if you look this up on Snopes, it'll say false. Um, it was not invented by the Nazis. Now, the rationale for this false rating is that since Kite was not a member of the actual Nazi party, that means Fanta was not invented by Nazis. This is ignoring the fact that while not a member of the party, he did work for the government in a direct capacity. Um, and this is what they close out their argument with quote, this man was not a Nazi, nor did he invent the drink at the direction of the third Reich, rather an effort to preserve Coca-Cola company assets and protect its people by way of keeping local plants operating. He formulated a new soft drink uh, when it became impossible to produce the company's flagship product. You, uh, Nick, do you see what's wrong with that defense of Max kite? Oh man. I guess, I, honestly, I was kind of hoping that they'd throw in there, don't you want a Fanta? <laughs> now, the reason why this defense is pretty weak is that it frames the, well, one, it completely shears away the fact that his Fanta was bottled by slave labor from concentration camps. <laughs> and two, he can't possibly be at fault despite being a Nazi government employee because he was simply trying to protect company assets. <sighs> It's yeah, he was not a Nazi, but he did work directly with the Nazi government using Nazi supplied slaves, material, and industry in order to defend his assets and employees, none of whom happened to be Jewish. This is not like a a Schindler's List scenario where like, no, my bottlers are all hidden Jewish re- refugees. Absolutely not. Also, the Hitler birthday bashes were just for funsies and should probably funsies. ignore the time he demanded Coke fire a Jewish man in a totally different country to appease Nazis. This is the fence they're throwing up. And I got to say, it's fucking weak. Sounds like a Nazi. Um, I don't know why I brought this up other than I remember really liking Snopes as a kid um, and watching it go to hell has really bummed me out. Um, I've never heard of it. So I don't know. Maybe it's because I I, I spent too much time. Like I, I had like intro to computers class mm. where you just like learn how to type. And like, yes, this is the Internet. And like, I knew what that was. So I just used way too many times. Like it was before Wikipedia, I think, or before I knew what Wikipedia was. Gotcha. And I would troll that and other weird shit. Um, something awful, which is a website that's melted my brain. Um, In school? Now. 
Oh yeah, it wasn't blocked. This is before they they had like obvious porn websites blocked, and that was it. You could go to other porn websites. Like uh, one of the famous ones is like WhiteHouse dot com <laughs> instead of dot gov. Like dot com was a porn site, and dot gov is the, you know the web the White House website, and the the school's filter didn't pick it up. Oh wow! So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So yeah, we were all looking at porn in class. I just didn't have internet when we had computer lab. Uh, we had like shitty dial, like municipal dial-up. We didn't even get taught how to type. We just, they're just like, hey, make a slide. <laughs> PowerPoints. Pretty much. Uh, to be fair, that ended up really helping your military career later on. <laughs> yeah, it made a single one since. <laughs> now, I, I have to point out that this... I say that I started with Fanta because it's one that probably didn't kill anybody, but to be fair, it probably did. Um, some of the slaves probably died. I don't know. Uh, but I will say, it didn't directly murder anybody, right? Um, it didn't lead to anybody's death. Any deaths involved in the Fanta situation were secondary. Um, so, you've heard of IBM computers, yeah. right? Perfect. So, IBM computers, or IT... Um, is one of the, the, the IBM is one of the oldest IT companies on Earth, dating back to like the 19th century, when IT just pretty much involved feeding a carrier pigeon or something, maybe putting like a helmet on a carrier pigeon. Um, now IBM, like Coke, is an American company that had been in business for a very long time, meaning there are very few Western nations that they were not already in by the time the Second World War started. This wasn't like. Hey, we didn't do business in Germany until the Nazis showed up. I'm going to go do business with these guys. Um, But back in the 1930s and 40s, a lot of IBM's business was simply keeping track of various databases. And all this is done via a punch card system. This could be, this is mostly like inventory and logistics. I didn't think IBM Um, was around back then, to be honest. It was kind of shocking. Like the IT was the thing before like computers were a thing. and it was all punch card systems, which sounds terrible to do. Like, imagine keeping track of all of the inventory, like on your property sheet that you signed yeah, that for awful. in the mill through fucking punch cards. These punch cards would be used, and by all accounts, they're very good at their jobs for terrible reasons we'll talk about shortly. Uh, they would be used to keep track of anything you needed them to, uh, and came with an in depth and detailed filing system that allowed people to file them away quickly and efficiently, and then again, retrieve them for. You know, data entry purposes. To understand where we're going, this one, you have to jump back in time a bit. The Nazi government contacted the German branch of IBM, which is called the Diomag, um, but owned by IBM. So we're just, it, rather than me butchering that weird German word, I'm just going to call them IBM or IBM Germany. Oh. Yeah, um, making things a lot easier for myself. Um, now, the reason for this was. The German government, this being the new Nazi government, wanted their punch card system reader uh, system uh, thing. It, it's infrastructure of cards and card readers and trainers and people that could do all these things. Because, I mean, this is a rather high-skilled system in the fucking 30s. Um, they wanted them to be in, uh, put in place in Germany because they wanted to conduct a census. Um, you know, like that thing they mail to your door and you probably ignore all the time. All the time. Yeah. Uh, at this point, at the same time, around 1933, it was already front page news that the Nazis were committing all kinds of anti-Semitic pogroms, uh, like forcing Jews out of certain pro- uh, professions and sending tens of thousands of people running for their lives across Europe. People were already being thrown in concentration camps. All, all of this is very public knowledge. It was in newspapers. Um, 
it was no secret that the Nazis were already very fucking bad people. That didn't even remotely slow down IBM's president, a guy named Thomas J. Watson Sr. Of course it's a senior. It's always a senior, right? Like the more fancy and add-ons that your name has, the bigger bastard that you are. Are you a junior? I'm not. Uh. No, definitely not. Um are are you uh uh, accusing me of being a bastard? <laughs> no, 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 no. You must be a junior. <laughs> this, is, this is just a curiosity. Uh, no, I don't think I have any. I don't think I have any juniors or seniors in my family. I was supposed to be named after my grandpa and my dad. Would that have made you junior senior? I don't know. I guess the third. That's cooler. I guess <laughs> if I was the, if I was to be the anything, I'd rather have a number after me. I'm the first. I'm gonna start calling myself <laughs> yeah. that. Uh, I, any surname? Yes, the first actually. <laughs> um, now Thomas J. Watson Senior uh, agreed that uh, you know we should do business with these guys, and agreed to sell the Nazis the material and expertise they needed to conduct their census. It did not take long for the German branch of IBM to become the most profitable branch in the company outside of the United States. Um, A few years later, Nazi violence against the Jews had only increased. In fact, it seemed more targeted, more systematic, and better organized. Because maybe, just maybe, the census that the government bought equipment for wasn't a census at all. It was a means to track the Jewish population of Germany so that it could be much easier, uh, much more easier targeted to violence and murder and later sent to camps. Oh, uh, IBM is doing all this? Yup. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, yeah, on the punch card system, they would keep track of where you lived, what your ethnicity was, which, uh, uh, what your religion was, what your race was, whatever. And it was almost solely used to target uh the other population, so like Romani, Jews, things like that. And then since they now know, they have a quick reference guide of where you live, how many people in your home, what they are like. It's, it's like laser targeting people. Oh, wow. Um, now, if you're Watson, you should be horrified by this. Uh, because, I mean, the idea of conducting a census was not new. But like this certainly is. <laughs> Um, you know, you maybe you demand your German branch cease work immediately, which would have meant the German state would have taken it over and probably continued doing it. However, IBM's hands are now clean, but more importantly, as a person, right. you're not taking part in a fucking genocide. Right. Uh, like if I was like, that would be like surrender, like being forced by the government to surrender, you know, your business. You no longer control it. You have nothing to do with it, and they're going to do horrible things with that business. And your other option is. No, no, no. The government can't have it. I'll do those horrible things <laughs> yeah. myself. They can't if tell me. Gonna do good, <laughs> if anybody's going to do a genocide, it's going to be me. Um, now, instead, uh, Watson did none of that. Uh, he was invited to go to Germany to receive a medal for all of the good that the IBM punch cards have done for the Nazis. So he gladly went and received a medal personally from Hitler. Like, at first, he was like, this is bullshit. This needs to stop. And they're like, hey, uh, we're going to give you a medal. He's like, holy fuck, really? <laughs> that, that's awesome. <laughs> I love medals. Best day ever. Yeah. Um, even if he was still lying to himself, maybe like, because I mean, there was a lot of denial when it came to the the expanse of, of, of the pogroms uh, against Jewish people because 
you know, like America's turning uh, Jews back on boats, sending them back to Europe and, and, and their death because like one anti-Semitism was very popular in the United States as well. And so were the Nazis. But like a lot of people didn't think it was that bad. Uh, like they must be, you know, blowing things out of proportion or whatever. So like maybe just maybe Watson was one of those guys. But then he had the ability to go to Germany and talk to the Nazi statisticians who were using his punch card system. And one of them told him, quote, in using statistics, the government now has a roadmap to switch from knowledge to deeds. Oh. Those statistics came from fucking IBM. Yeah. Now, um, if that wasn't enough, he was invited to like an after party of sorts uh, by a Nazi party official who openly explained to him, yeah, a Jewish family used to own this house, but I stole it from him. Thanks to you. Yeah. Yeah. Using your punch card system, I looted this whole motherfucker. Thank you, Mr. Watson. And he's like, hmm, I still don't quite understand what's going on here. Have you seen my medal? Yeah. <laughs> Have you seen, check this out? Like, oh yeah, we give those to every idiot <laughs> yeah. that we use. Uh, then in 1938, the Night of Broken Glass occurred, or, uh, you know, known as Kristallnacht. Um, once again, broadcasting Nazi crimes to a worldwide audience that was almost universally aghast at these horrible crimes. Um, to Watson, this finally meant that he had to make a stand. You, you want to guess how he made a stand? No, I don't, I don't have any guess. He wrote a firmly worded letter to Hitler. Uh, now, I, I have the, the text of the whole letter, and I will say he does not say the word Jewish or Jew or anything a single time. Uh, <laughs> uh, now, I'll quote, I find the change in public sentiment and loss of goodwill to your country. And unless something can be done to bring about more friendly understanding on the part of our people, I feel it's going to be difficult to accomplish mutually satisfactory results with connection to our trade relations. I respectfully appeal to you to give consideration. Oh, consideration. consideration yes. To applying the golden rule with dealing with these minorities. End quote. P.S. Thanks for the medal. Is there a cleaning <laughs> kit that it might come with? I believe it was the same medal that Henry Ford got, too. Oh, so anybody just uh, gets no, a mirror. And I think uh, Ford got his from Himmler. Uh, but, or maybe it was Goring. I don't remember. Uh, but yeah, so remember, the, the Jewish people are being slaughtered and forced into concentration camps. They're like the Jewish laws have already been passed at this point, like race laws or any, I believe the Nuremberg laws is what they're called, are already pushed into effect. Um, Tens of thousands of people are running for their lives. And he's like, I just, I just want you to consider the golden rule. You know, treat others how you want to be treated. As long as you consider it before stealing their shit, we're fine. It's a very weird choice of words. Did you get a, like a response? No, and here's why. Oh, yeah, it was returned unopened by the post office <laughs> because he got the address wrong. And he's like, well, I did what I could. Yeah, that's it. The only thing he ever did was eventually mail his medal back. Uh, and even then, that was probably to make him look good to the U.S. government uh, as they took sides with the British in 1940. He probably sent it to the same address because he knew it would get sent back. <laughs> it's like that scene from Always Sunny where uh, they find all of the Nazi memorabilia. Yeah. <laughs> Weird. I wonder how he got all that. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, then... In 1939, it happened again. 
Um, now, the IBM punch card system played a central role in the 1939 census that identified what were known in Germany as, quote, racial Jews and gathered information on the bloodlines of everybody living with a newly expanded Third Reich. Now, remember, in 1939, this includes more than just Germany. Soon, all vestiges of not being under Nazi leadership were gone. All Jews were fired from the company, and noted Nazi shithead Rudolf Hess was was made the head of German IBM. Uh, yeah. Now, this is, again, Watson has, like, another option where he can be like, okay, now I need to do something here. Instead of running off into the night, or, you know, what I consider more justified, killing himself out of guilt uh, for handing the keys of genocide to Adolf goddamn Hitler, Watson fought tooth and nail to retain control over the German branch throughout the war. This is bullshit. (laughs) That is my company! Uh... Germany had not actually seized the business, and neither did Watson renounce it. He refused to give up ownership and refused to allow it to be bought out. I could do it better. More- I can do a better job. <laughs> you you call that a genocide? I'll do a genocide. Um, more worryingly, IBM officials did not stop reviewing financial reports from the German branch that passed through the Geneva office through a third party. Because remember, Geneva and Switzerland are neutral. Right. So, IBM's uh, Geneva office could hypothetically, well, not hypothetically because they did actually do it, review the financial files of IBM Germany, which could then, being a neutral party, report them to the United States branch and tell them, yo, they're making a fuckload of money. Also, the Geneva office could legally do business with them because, remember, they're subsidiaries. So, IBM was doing business with Nazi Germany throughout the war and fueling the Holocaust. Mm. And now, if you're wondering, like, really, how much worse could these punch card systems make, you know, one of the world's most industrial killing machines? I have statistics. Um, now, but before we get to the raw numbers of it, um, I need to tell you how exactly this would happen. What German authorities and IBM would do is when Germany would take over a country, say, any of the low countries, you know, France, Poland, whatever, um, they would attempt to retrofit whatever systems they had in place into the Hollerth punch card system, which is what the the system was called, uh, that they used in Germany. At which point they'd carry out a census, guessing what kind of census that was, looking for Jews and their entire families and their addresses and where they could be found. And then using that information, uh, they would more efficiently send the victims off to death camps. Nations that already had a punch card system in place... Because remember, IBM is all over Western Europe. Um, it means that Germany could just slide right into that system and co-opt it to be an efficient genocide machine. Now, to argue this point further, the book IBM and the Holocaust, a book I'm sure IBM is very pleased with, uh, contrasts two countries that fell victim to this, Holland and France. The Nazis ordered the census in both countries soon after they were occupied. In Holland, they had what was called a, quote, well-entrenched Hollerth infrastructure, meaning they have very well-functioning IBM systems. Out of an estimated 140,000 Dutch Jews, more than 107,000 were deported. And of those, 102,000 were murdered. This is a death ratio of 73%. In France, which had a punch card infrastructure that was considered in complete disarray and required much work to get in working order, 
of the estimated 300 to 350,000 Jews in German-occupied and Vichy zones, 85,000 were deported, of whom 3,000 survive. The death ratio for France was around 25%. So you can wow. see that the stark contrast what a well-functioning IBM system does for the genocide. It's not looking good but on you, IBM. It gets worse. Oh, it does? Uh, and I haven't even gotten to what, in my opinion, is the worst company of the group. Now... If do you like if you were thinking ah the punch cards must have only been used to track these people down you're wrong. The punch cards did not stop at census. These systems were also used within the death camps and concentration camps themselves. And the camps they'd be used to record where the person was from, whatever reason that the Germans were given for tossing them into the camp, of which obviously there were many. They were political prisoners, they were um you could be thrown there for being gay or trans. Uh for instance, Prisoner code 8 was Jewish person. Prisoner code 11 was Romani. These are all reflected on the punch codes. Punch cards, rather. They would then track which camp you'd be sent to using the punch cards. Camp code 001 was Auschwitz. Camp code 002 was Buchenwald. And then, of course, you know what comes next. They would even track how they killed you. Status code 5 was execution by order. Normally, like a single person executed for whatever reason. And then code six was gas chamber. They would keep track of all of this and file it away for reasons I am not entirely sure of. That's one thing I, I, I'm under, I understand. Nazis were really good at that. They're very German. Yeah, they're very good at keeping bureaucratic records. Um, and the, you know, that's one of the things that's always like infuriated me uh, when it comes to like Holocaust denial, genocide denial in general, is that the best records are always kept by the people who did it. And then people like you know, would say that they're planted or whatever. And like, what's incredible is Germany destroyed. I don't even know how many hundreds of thousands of records uh, attempting to cover up a lot of this stuff and lo- still look at everything that we have. You know, they they kept meticulous notes, right. kind of like you know when we talk about the Khmer Rouge when they kept uh, pictures of every single person that went through uh, Tolslang. Yeah, you know. Uh, um, now, if you're wondering. Just how integral uh, these punch card readers and, and, and systems were to the Holocaust, I point you to the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum, who considers them so important to the Holocaust that they house several of them as part of their exhibit. Now, I should point out, not that I'm a journalist or anything, but to be completely fair, IBM denies everything I just said. All of it. Really? Um, however... It should be noted that IBM and the uh, IBM and the Holocaust author Edwin Black has been hailed for his research, uh, which involved working with over a hundred different assistants over various different countries for several years. Furthermore, if none of this was true and uh, or at least provable to the extent that Black did, IBM could very easily sue him for libel and win because there's an entire book of evidence if he was lying. But they've never done so or even threatened to do it. Generally, I'm not one to point out that. Being brought to court over charges means uh, is like a means test for innocence. However, I am willing to believe uh, I'm willing to believe that when the evidence uh, of that uh, of someone doing something terrible uh, and accusing you of having a hand and you know murdering millions of people and you know you didn't, you'd bring them to court. Right. This, but they haven't. Hmm. Um, so IBM knows what it did. Uh, now, I said that we weren't at the worst part. Yeah, IBM sounded pretty bad. This one's the worst part. Um, have you ever had an aspirin before? Oh, yeah, plenty. I'm looking at them right now. All right. I mean, it's definitely one of those drugs. 
I got the old exchange select version, you know? Yeah, uh, it's it's definitely one of those drugs that we as uh, soldiers and veterans abuse along with like ibuprofen because we don't oh, know yeah, what you know, recommended dosage means. Uh, just rotting at our stomachs. <laughs> yeah, this says take only four. I'm going to go ahead and take eight. Now, we're not going to be talking explicitly about aspirin, except for a little bit at the end here. But we are going to be talking about the people who invented it, Bayer. Um, now, uh, during World War II, Bayer was part of a giant conglomerate known as IG Farben. IG Farben, unlike other things we talked about, was not just doing business with the Nazis, but instead were hardcore Nazis themselves. So this one is, like, undeniable. Oh. <laughs> um. In the 1920s, the Nazis had accused the company of being one of many international Jewish companies that were bad for Germany and the world. Uh, though this would probably had more to do with the fact that Farben was donating huge amounts of money to a political rival of the Nazis, the German People's Party, who were also right-wing and nationalist, but not nearly as insane as the Nazis. Right. But by the 30s, that would change. Uh, even before the Nazis were in power, Farben switched and began donating tons of money to the Nazis themselves. After which they purged every Jewish employee from their payroll before they were even required to by law, which did become a law in Germany. Um, but this is before that. They like did out of good faith to the Nazis. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know. We got you, buddy. <laughs> yeah. Um They were also, once the Nazis came to power, the earliest benefactors of Jewish slave labor. Because they were the most powerful companies in the world and probably the most powerful in Nazi Germany, they could pretty much tap any powerful person for favors. So they did. Uh, in 1941, they got Heinrich Himmler to personally send order to allow them to open up a rubber plant right next to the Morowitz concentration camp. Hmm. Uh, then they could force tens of thousands of people from the camp to work in the factories as slaves upon threats of death. Um, this is not the only factory set up this way, but by the end of the war, around half of the uh, con- the company's entire workforce, around 300,000 people, were slaves. That- that's an incredible amount of slavery, even if like the-, the fucking Confederate South. Now, for those unaware of the sprawling concentration camp system of Nazi Germany, I'll give you a quick rundown. First of all, I'd like to say congrats for not knowing this. And second of all, I apologize for teaching you. <laughs> Um, Morowitz was part of the greater Auschwitz camp complex. Uh, Monowitz would uh, eventually be called Auschwitz III. Uh, Auschwitz I was the administration center, and Auschwitz II was commonly known as Auschwitz-Birkenau, or the death camp. Also, uh, an employee that worked for IG Farben Bear, a guy named Fritz Termier, was actually helped plan and construct this camp in the first place. Yeah, it's literally IG Farben all the way down. Unfortunately, Farben would be involved in much, much more than just slave labor. And this is, I think this is the first time I've ever say, said that before. Is like, actually, they did way worse than the slave labor stuff uh, because they did. And now uh, Bear is a part of uh, IG Farben. And they all kind of work and do their own things. And they all have their own purpose within the conglomerate. Um now, Bayer was like a subsidiary. Uh, they also had independent control, and they still exist in most of our lives today. I I would say most people listening probably have some aspirin-type aspirin sub- substance in their house or something made by Bayer because like, it you know, it's been proven to um, be good for your heart and things like that. Um, so that was the part where I get to talk about all the horrible crimes that we're all kind of complicit in by giving them money. 
Um, <laughs> uh, also, content warning here. We're talking about medical experiments in death camps. Yeah. Nick, you don't get a content warning. Like some, <laughs> like some Mangala stuff? Yep. Oh, okay. Bear was, most of all, a pharmaceutical company. Surprise, surprise, right? Um, they obviously invented aspirin, but they also used to sell heroin. So that's, that's kind of fun. You can't get that over the counter these days. I've tried. No, you cannot. Uh, that has nothing to do with any of this, but I felt like it was kind of funny. Um, but one of the more important things that they did do was pharmaceutical research and development. This led to them employing a guy named Fritz Haber, uh, probably one of the most pathetic men to have ever lived in the history of mankind. Not the coolest name. No. I'm um, a name guy. Have you ever heard... This is where I get to quote uh, Joe Rogan for probably the first time ever this podcast. Have you ever heard of the tragedy of Fritz Habernick? No. All right. Um, this is a pretty well-known story, but I do have to talk about it. Haber oversaw the use and development of chemical weapons and warfare in World War One as the head of the chemical department of the Prussian Ministry of War. Um, he was pretty much the reason um, that uh, Germany used chemical weapons. Gotcha. I'm- Even for the time, this is considered incredibly dishonorable and disgusting. Um, so everybody kind of hated this guy. Uh, and But most importantly, if they didn't hate him personally, they hated his work. Uh, his, his work brought so much dishonor onto his family that his wife took his handgun and shot herself in the face in the garden when she found out about Holy it. Holy fuck. Yeah. <laughs> Despite the suicide of his wife because of his work, Haber was very proud of what he had done and was a fervent German nationalist. He was promoted to captain within the German military despite not actually being in the military in the first place. Okay. After World War I, he continued working on chemical weapons for the, Germ- for the various German governments from Weimar and then the Nazis. And then in the mid-1920s, he invented a little something known as Zyklon A, a pest control chemical that would later be turned into, drumroll, mm. Zyklon fucking B, the main substance used by the Nazis to exterminate millions in death camps. Uh, I know a dude who has one. A canister. Oh, God damn it. I forgot. Did you ever tell that story on the show? I feel like you did. I think I have. He's kind of, he's kind of not, a, not a good guy. You don't say. The guy who owns an expended Zyklon B canister is not a good guy. He also has a flamethrower from Stalingrad. How the fuck did he get that? No clue. Like, I, I get that, like, well, reenactors he, are weird. He has a bunch of armored vehicles, so I don't have no fucking idea. <laughs> How much money does this guy have? Like, how do you just have, oh, this is my flamethrower and my uh, small tank brigade? He's real weird about it, too. He's like, you could still hear the souls and the flamethrower. And I was like, dude, you're a fucking psycho. That man should be illegally, should be legally prohibited from owning anything that he owns. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. Do red flag laws cover <laughs> reenactors? Because it fucking should. It doesn't. Because you know what? They'll come up like, oh. Fucking ATF would come and be like, oh, this, this shit is fucking badass. Yeah, well, it's because the ATF and them are probably friends. Now, um, even after all of this, uh, he continued being one of the nation's best scientists. I bet a fucking soulless one uh, for Germany as the Nazis came to power. And then, unfortunately, like, you know how we just talked about how the Nazis would eventually force everybody to fire all of the Jews in their employ? Hmm. Hmm. Well, Fritz Haber was fucking Jewish. Um, was he? And he, 
yes. He had long since because he was he wasn't anti-Semitic. However, the people that he worked with and for and surrounding his work uh, were hugely anti-Semitic. So a long time ago. Yeah. And a long time ago, he dedicated himself to German nationalism because you see this a lot today uh, regarding Jewish people in Israel and fuck even Chinese people in China, where it's like this old dog whistle racism of like the dual um, loyalties trope. Like you can't possibly be a German nationalist and a Jew, or you can't possibly be an American and and uh, uh, and Chinese uh, because you have loyalty to a different government, or it's it's racist as fuck. Right. Um, and he was not an observant Jew. He didn't consider himself Jewish in any way. Uh, but this is what happens when you try to rationalize with Nazis. But yeah, uh, he lost his job. Um, Working for the working and building for chemical weapons, and honestly, if it wasn't for the Nazis doing it, having a guy get fired, if if you know if he was getting fired for not being uh, uh, a particular race or, or religion, firing everybody involved in making chemical weapons, objectively a good thing. Who <laughs> <laughs> know? But but unfortunately, it's not, and only he was fired. Um, after this, Haber realized that he would have to run for his life, or the Nazis were going to kill him. Uh, and he made it to Switzerland where he promptly killed over and died from a heart attack. <laughs> uh, meanwhile, the pesticide that he made, Zyklon B, was used to kill pretty much his entire family over the course of the next few years. Oh. However, Haber's exile and death would not be the, uh, the end of Bayer's pharmaceutical development and experimentation during the war. Which unfortunately brings us right back to Auschwitz, one of the main camps used for Nazi experimentation. Doctors and scientists employed by Bayer worked directly in and with the camps. Because remember, they helped build them. Right. In other cases, Bayer would simply buy or rent Jews from the camp to use them for experimentation, many of which took place at the women's camp in Block 20. A Bayer employee wrote to Rudolf Haas, the uh, Auschwitz commandant, quote, the transport of 150 women arrived in good condition. However, we were unable to obtain conclusive results because they died during the experiments. We would kindly request that you send us another group of women in the same number at the same price. What? Yep. We had a good episode last week. (laughs) You know, I figured I'd given you three ish months off from genocide i just slide oh, one thanks, back in thanks for giving me the three months off <laughs> in, in other cases say um bear didn't have the the, the uh, i don't know boots on the ground so to speak <laughs> to to do all of these uh, experiments themselves the ss had a lot of doctors as well oh, yeah. right um they would pay SS doctors on retainer to conduct experiments for them, effectively making them contractors. Bears did that? Yep. Do you think they paid Joseph Mengele? That's the only one I really know about. Uh, they sure did. Jesus. So this included infecting victims with diseases like diphtheria, tuberculosis, and typhus, and then testing possible cures on them. This ended with the deaths of thousands of people dying in unspeakable ways I'm not going to get into. Uh, but... We do have paper evidence that says that one of the SS doctors that Bear paid on retainer was none other than the angel of death, Joseph motherfucking Mengele. Wow. Yup. Yup! Now, 
at the end of the war, there's a lot of finger pointing about who knew what within the ranks of IG Farben when it came to what was going on in these camps. As you can imagine, people are rapidly attempting to cover their own asses. What was going on? No way. I didn't know about this at all, says a guy with like a necklace made out of stolen (laughs) Jewish gold. He's just burning shit in the trash can next to him. I'm burning all these papers because I'm cold. Yeah. Now, many members of the IG Farben board said they had no idea that their gas, which was being manufactured throughout the war in greater and greater quantities every single month, was being used to kill people in gas chambers that they themselves had actually planned and designed under the guise of lice fumigation. Hmm. However, that was pretty easily disproven upon firsthand accounts of slaves who were forced to work in the IG Farben factories. They all testified that uh, like their, their supervisors who were IG Farben employees, not Nazi camp guards, would be like, if you don't fucking work, we'll send you to the gas chambers. They knew even the, like middle fucking management knew what was happening Jesus. and threatening them with it. Like, how low do you have to be? on the IG Farben totem pole to work on a line factory in a death camp. And even those guys knew what was happening. Now, uh, during the Nuremberg trials, there's two side trials that took place. One was known as the doctor's trial and the other was the IG Farben trial. Yeah, IG Farben was considered such horrible war criminals that they, re- that they required their own war crimes trial. Now, during the doctor's trial, uh, one of the men who worked for Bear in the camps directly, Helmuth Vetter, was found guilty and hung. Um, it would have been two, for sure, but um, as we know, unfortunately, Joseph Mengele escaped uh, to South America, where he died a few decades later, something I'm sure we'll talk about at a later date. In the IG Farben trial, nobody was sentenced to death. Those sentences were given from a couple years to around a decade. Everyone was let out early. Really? What One the- of the men who was let out early was none other than Fritz Termier, uh, who, remember, helped build yeah. Auschwitz. Uh, you you, you want to guess how his career arc turned out? Um, CEO? <laughs> oh. Yes! What? <laughs> <laughs> fucking what? Fritz Termier was made the head of Bear AG, a new a newly formed company based on the bones of Bear from IG Farben, less than a year after he was released from prison for war crimes in 1951. Ooh. Now, you remember how I brought up aspirin in the very beginning and I said we'd come back to it? Yeah. All right. We're we're doing that now. So, the original we're doing synthesis aspirin? Yeah, because uh, it turns out, like, you know, you could make the excuse, well, Bear could, I suppose, make the excuse that, you know, we, you know, we were just forced to do all this from the Nazis. We're clearly not Nazis. We're not anti-Semitic. All those people, like, they made Rudolf Hess the board of our company. Like, we had no choice. What were we going to do? Besides all that being complete and utter bullshit. Um, this goes on to current day. So, aspirin, uh, the the drug the the synthesis uh we know now was done by a chemist named Arthur Eckengrun as uh, a Jewish man who worked for Bayer in 1897 Bayer's official story and the one they stick to despite overwhelming evidence to the contrary is that it was invented by Arthur's subordinate a German named Felix Hoffman now this is where things get kind of weird <laughs> so in desperation, Arthur was uh, thrown in a concentration camp and was desperately trying to um, like negotiate his release because he knew what was happening. Right. 
Um, so he wrote a letter to IG Farben from a concentration camp that was designed by IG Farben while facing down industrial genocidal murder by IG Farben made gas in an IG Farben made gas chamber after, of course, his information was taken by an IBM punch card that he had directed Hoffman to mix the substances together that eventually create aspirin. But Hoffman had no idea what he was doing and was only acting on his orders to do so. This is generally recognized as the truth. Um, IG Farben rejected his claim then, and Bear AG continues to do so as late as 2014. What? Yeah! I guess what I'm saying is the IG Farben trial probably should have ended in more executions. It doesn't sound too bad. Yeah, so to this day, I Bear AG continues being anti-Semitic as shit. That's fucking insane. <sighs> yeah, isn't that great? Aren't you glad that you came back to the show? <laughs> uh, I had no idea about some of that stuff. Actually, most of it. Now you said you knew something. Uh, you knew uh, you knew a little bit about some of these. Uh, not not, not these three. <laughs> no clue. Yeah, I'm. I'm glad I can expand your horizons <laughs> in regards to horrible war criminal conglomerates. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> now, something that might be a uh, a little uh, easier, um, lighthearted, maybe. Um, so we do a little thing on the show called Questions from the Legion, obviously. Right. Um, where we attempt to shoehorn them in at the end of episodes like this in order to make us feel less like dying. Like, I thought you uh, talked about you... Nestle. I know Nestle helped, I think. Uh, well, Nestle continues to do some awful shit. Uh, they were recently in the Supreme Court, like, debating that they didn't technically use child slaves. Uh, they were just indentured servants. Oh, okay. That's good. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely monstrous people. Um, fuck you, Nestle. Uh, so if you, we do a thing in the show called Questions from the Legion, if you'd like to ask us a question from the Legion, donate to the Patreon at the $1 or above level and send us uh, emails, DMs, Patreon messages. Uh, just don't send us anything in a Fanta bottle. Oh, um, yeah. And this week's question from the Legion is, if you had to pick one historical figure that we have talked about, uh, which is you know damn near 150 episodes at this point, to be your squad leader, who would oh. it be? <laughs> Jesus. Hmm. If I pick Patton, Patton will beat me. Pat would definitely slap you in the face. Oh, for sure. Maybe I'd like it. I don't know. Cadorna would get me killed. That he might get you killed, but he might also kill you. That's true. <laughs> Two, that's a twofer. <laughs> no. Fuck. You know, I want to go with Patton. At, at least you'd have some flex, but then also you'd have to be a tanker. So jokes on you. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> I would definitely have to pick um, Leo Major. Really. I really like Leo Major because he's nuts. And he's like the only Canadian we've ever talked about. You know what? That's actually a really good one. Uh, it's bad because like, I quite legitimately don't remember all the people we've, we've talked about over the years. I do remember that Leo Major lost an eye. That's about all I remember. He definitely lost an eye, yeah. And like he like rage captured yeah. an entire town. <laughs> I wish I would Which is like an energy I can get behind. Yeah. But I, with my luck, if I went with him, I'm down immediately. Oh, yeah. With my luck, I would be the friend that got killed right next to him. <laughs> yeah. I'm, sh- I'm sure I'm glad you're my squad leader, squad leader Mr. Majors. Flap. 
just <laughs> getting, immediately getting clapped with a fucking MG32 or whatever. See, with my luck, with Patton, uh, you know, might take a five fingers to the face. Who knows? I mean, when the other option is like getting blown up, I would much rather get slapped. I mean, it's not, it's not even close, really. Um, no, it's not. <laughs> though, though he was slapping wounded people. So like, oh, so, oh fuck! I'd have to get wounded first. Oh, yeah. Not only would you have to get clapped, you'd then have to get clapped by Patton. You know what? <laughs> you get a two first. Yeah. You know what? Maybe this is. What an awful! <laughs> like, I, I wouldn't want any of these as squad leaders. Can I pick like a fucking Patrick Swayze? Tom Cruise. He was never. He was never. Uh, so Tom Cruise, I feel like, would be a better choice. At least he's a samurai. And you, we talked about him. He movies. counts. Yeah. Did I say counts. Patrick Swayze? You said Patrick Swayze. And I don't think Patrick Swayze was ever in a war movie. I could have just s- roundhouse a lot of people. I mean, I mean, you could pick he was Josh in Red Peck. Dawn. <laughs> oh fuck! He wasn't Red Dawn. Yeah, I'm a fucking idiot. My bad. Yeah, he got everybody killed. So yeah. that's good. So fuck I. Everybody who rolled the Tom Cruise died. Everybody who rolled the t- <laughs> Patrick Swayze died. Yeah, Patrick Swayze was like the lone survivor. Yeah, didn't Charlie Sheen die? Uh yes, he did. Mm. <laughs> I'm starting to think that we have we have uh, accidentally pulled a whole bunch of terrible people together, almost like we run a show called Lions Let's Be Donkeys. <laughs> yeah. Maybe all these squad leaders suck. I don't, I don't, whoever we pick, we're all gonna die. That's true. Okay, That's the golden I'll pick rule. Patton, and then I'll pick Patrick. Actually, yeah, Patrick Swayze. I'll pick them too. Patrick Swayze for, my, for, for Red Dot. Yeah, yeah, I feel like we should throw a movie one in there too. Like I have to say, if I'm picking one of our movie uh, examples, Patrick Swayze is a much better leader than Josh Peck was from Absolutely. the Red, Red Dawn remake, who holds up a subway. <laughs> uh, but uh, Nick, thanks again for joining me. Next episode will be not genocide related. Sweet. I'm always down for that. Those are a rule. Those are a rule. I'll never. Here's my solemn promise to you: I'll never surprise you with a genocide. Haven't you though? I don't think so. Okay. <laughs> if I have, General But Naked was a surprise. That's true. I mean, to fair, he surprised a lot of people. That's that's um, a very true. And thank you everybody for joining us. And until next time, um, I don't have anything nice and quippy for this one since we just talked about all these horrible companies. Uh, don't buy anything from these companies. Don't just don't do that. <laughs>